0: Let's do it. Welcome one, welcome all, to episode 16 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, where we discuss all things going on in the gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. This week's XEP recorded on January 26th, 2020. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Incipid Ghost, and on this week's episode, we'll be talking about Ninja Theory's latest project... Project X Cloud expansions into Canada, and we have an incredible interview with the Chief Operating Officer of Able Gamers, Stephen Spawn. Enjoy it, guys. Yet another week of gaming news is upon us and behind us, and first up on our discussion list for this week is Ninja Theory. They have a portfolio that is rich and diverse and is only expanding with their latest project, Project Mara. But let's first look at what they have in the near future. Bleeding Edge is set to come out on March 24th of this year, and while it doesn't seem to match up with the tone and structure of their other projects, I have to say, I'm pleased to see this. Ninja Theory talked about developing a studio base and a studio philosophy of dividing into smaller teams to work on different types of projects. A number of those projects do examine mental illnesses of varying degrees. Senua's Saga and Senua's Sacrifice both examine what it's like for a character to go through psychosis and navigate a world in which you're unsure what is real and what is not, when you're hearing voices and seeing things that simply may not exist. How do you navigate that world? And Hellblade is certainly a fantastic way of examining that psychosis while also playing through a fictional storyline, and I really love it. I absolutely adore it. They also announced that they had Project Insight in the works, which is a mental health and well-being experiment that may end up being a game or not. I'm unsure where it is that that Ninja Theory hopes to go with Project Insight, but I'm excited to see it. There is the much-talked-about gamification of mental illnesses and whether or not that's a good thing, whether or not it's okay to gamify what some people go through in, in terms of suffering. And simply put, I find that argument to be a bit silly. We gamify a number of things, war and sex among them. Those are two very hot-button issues in in our current society, and yet you go in Call of Duty and you get points for killing other people, killing them with guns, knives, bombs, gases of varying degrees of, of suffering caused there. So the idea that people might be concerned or upset with examining mental illness via video game form, I find that to be a bit silly. I find that to be a bit odd. When we can bring light to issues that people go through, I think that's a good thing. And mental illness is a stigma-based aspect where people will look at it and judge it. Because it can be a very invisible set of illnesses, people don't tend to take it as seriously. So I really applaud what Ninja Theory is doing. In their latest project, Project Mara, they're describing it as a representation of mental terror. And if you look at the trailer, it is fascinating and impressive visually. That You can go through and watch that trailer, which takes place in a hallway. The trailer is less than a minute long. And everything in it is rendered in-game, from what I understand. And it all looks real. They do a number of different things with ray tracing, which is, of course, the buzzword of the graphic world right now. But they, they really bring to life... This singular environment in which apparently your character Mara, which we presume it to be, is going to exist in and play throughout the entire game. I love that I'm seeing this from Ninja Theory, and my first gut instinct, apart from being impressed, is that of concern. You know, they do have a lot on their plate. Bleeding Edge, Hellblade 2, Project Insight, now Project Mara. The studio is only so big and takes only so many people, but they're rolling out a vision and an idea of a studio structure they call Dreadnought, where they have teams working on those individual things, structured in a way that allows them to move between the teams as they need, but really focus on their soul and small projects. I like this. I'm excited by this. This only means that as gamers, we're set to experience AAA standard quality graphics and single double A indie approaches to storytelling. I like this. I would imagine this, the way they've structured it, means we'll see more from Ninja Theory in smaller portions of time, and they simply won't be 20, 30, 40 hour epic tales, which works really well for me and my current attention span in the gaming verse. So I'm encouraged by what I see from Ninja Theory, and really all eyes on Project Mara, all eyes on Hellblade 2. I'm interested to see what Bleeding Edge has to offer that looks to me to be the perfect type of game that Game Pass will allow me to try because I'm not overly hyped on it. I mean, I I like it. I see what I I see, what I see, and I'm like, neat. That's cool. My attention is really in other places for the, the February March window, and yet I have the opportunity to try it out. And if I'm impressed, sweet. If not, there's no skin, no harm, no foul, no money lost in that endeavor. So take that for what you will. Next up in things that you might have missed. A Plague's Tale: Innocence has been added to Game Pass, along with Sea Salt, Indivisible, Fishing Sim World, and in case you missed it. But I really want to call attention to this because A Plague's Tale: Innocence is set to be, or said to be, rather, one of the best games of 2019, and one that I simply didn't get to during that time and window. But it's now available for Game Pass on PC and on console, and I am so encouraged by this. This is yet another example of a high-profile third-party title entering into the Game Pass world. We just talked about Ninja Theory and the first-party mantras that they're bringing into that catalog, but now we have yet another big third-party title added into it. Game Pass, man, it's really accelerating the rate at which it adds high-quality games. Just recently, we got Grand Theft Auto V. That's exciting. Ori 2 is set to uh, come into Game Pass just next month. Goodness gracious, you really have to be encouraged and excited. I, for one, am going to be checking out a Plague Tale Innocence because I did Miss that and it is so highly touted so many friends of mine have said that it's a good game and worthy of, of checking out that it does get a bit emotional in some some parts but worthy of playing through and i'm excited by that so good news there other good news, particularly for Canadian listeners of the show and Canadian gamers all around, the xCloud beta has been expanded to include Canada starting on January 29th, which is right around the corner and perhaps even behind us as you're listening to this episode. We knew from XO 19 that Microsoft would be bringing more to the xCloud catalog throughout 2020, not just in terms of games, but also in terms of regions. So for Canada to be able to step into this incredible world of xCloud is only good for gamers. xCloud also added Destiny 2, hello to the Stadia fans, and the Master Chief Collection, which has gotten a huge boost in terms of quality and content when they brought out the Halo Reach update. I find this to be extremely encouraging because as this xCloud technology continues to expand, I'm getting better experiences in more places. I tackled more xCloud on my very weak and underpowered and old tablet the other day. And some games, I was able to play swimmingly. I did have to update the controller, which I found to be interesting, but the rate at which xCloud is adding games, they're over 50 plus, the regions that they're bringing in, the amount of gamers that are trying it out, the amount of gamers that are playing multiplayer AAA titles with those who are on their consoles is one, astounding, and two, encouraging to see where this technology can bring us. I think that we've often heard in the last two or three weeks a number of conversations surrounding PlayStation and them bringing their games to PC. That's exciting and that's encouraging because you want more people to play get great games wherever you can. But if the streaming technology comes around, that means that we're able to play games that our local hardware might not be able to run, but due to a a decent or positive or even great internet connection, we'll be able to play those games in a number of different places. And I love the idea that I can just log into xCloud and play Destiny 2, similar to that of the discussions surrounding Stadia, but perhaps with a bigger audience or a bigger player base. I love the idea that there's stuff in xCloud that is free that I don't own. And that's one of the, uh, I suppose you should a underrated features of xCloud is if you log in and sign up for the beta you can play a number of games that you don't own and get those achievements have those experiences play them on your various devices I love it. it it makes me excited and encouraged to see there particularly with as they've announced console streaming as well so multiple ways to play games on multiple screens and devices all of that is encouraging and it really it lends itself to the conversations that Microsoft has been bringing forth about accessibility, not just in terms of physical or cognitive needs, but also simply what you have available to you to access games. Do you have an underpowered tablet like myself, which I typically only use for comic books? Do you have just your phone and a controller? Do you have another console that has an available input method like a PS4 DualShock and a TV screen that you're able to log in and and create a gaming experience for, If you don't have an Xbox, XCloud and and Stadia and so many of the technologies surrounding that can bring you those experiences in the future. And I'm hoping that it does work out because, man, what a great world that would be to live in. Just log in and play. And that's the promise that Stadia offered uh, and did not deliver. And here's hoping that gets fixed as well. So, you know, something to it. All in all, XCloud expanding to to Canada. More regions soon. More games continuing to be added to that catalog. (laughs) Let's quickly take some listener questions before we get into a review of Journey to the Savage Planet, a game I got to play and was fortunate enough to play early, and then we'll dive into the incredible Steven Spawn interview. Our first question comes from Todd Oxtra, and he asks, How much longer do you expect Xbox Live and Game Pass to exist separately? Do you think Game Pass Ultimate becomes the only option available eventually? Oh, goodness gracious. Fantastic question, Todd, and and a really one that is a doozy for a number of reasons. First, do I expect it to become the only option eventually? Yes, I think that is the future they are working towards. I think that they will be very tepid and timid in the, the way that they approach this in various regions because each region of the world approaches gaming differently, and they're likely going to have to be very careful in their messaging of this because the the headline could potentially be as we saw with the Xbox exclusives not happening, it might be, you know, Microsoft cancels Xbox Live Gold. And that's not the headline that you want. Microsoft cancels Game Pass standard. That's not the headline you want. And so I think they'll have to roll it out. Gradually, more and more, we're seeing less about Xbox Live Gold, less about Game Pass, and everything about Game Pass Ultimate. So the message has got to be gradual. I think the future they're working towards is simply Game Pass Ultimate. And eventually, they'll just be able to drop The title Game Pass, drop the title Ultimate, drop Xbox Live Gold, and it'll simply be Xbox, and that is the long, long ahead future we're looking toward. Towards perhaps 10 years, maybe 12. You know, maybe it's when that inevitable time of consoles don't exist. Whenever that does come to pass, which I think is far further off than many predicted in 2013, 2012, 2011, and further off still than many are predicting now. I think we're changing the way we approach the console space. But the end-all, be-all goal for Xbox is that of engagement and dollars spent, not local hardware. The sooner Xbox and any company can get rid of local hardware, the sooner they can make profits off their subscription services uh, and not have to worry about eating the cost of that hardware. Because as we know, nine times out of ten in most cases, hardware is sold at a loss, and it takes, what, five years I think is the the commonly understood theme for, for it to be profitable. I'd have to check on that one, but that's just my, my gut instinct telling me that. But it's a good ways off, Todd. Great question, man. I love it. Bill Coniglio writes in and says, I have a feeling infinite won't make launch. Your thoughts? Oh, goodness. That is a future I don't want to live in, Bill. I do not want to see a world where infinite is delayed. Uh, I do not think infinite is going to be delayed. I think that's the... The The topic of the hour, given all the recent delays we've seen from the smallest and littlest and no one cares, like Dying Light 2, where, it, where it's a very small community, to the biggest and greatest cyberpunk in Final Fantasy 7. So I think that's the topic of the hour, is delays. But as far as Infinite being delayed, I do not expect that we see that happen. However, I hope it does happen if they need it. We cannot have another Halo 5 or Halo 4 situation where the community likes one aspect, dislikes the other you know, praises the multiplayer, really hates the single player, loves the single player, can't stand the multiplayer. They've got to really nail Infinite in order for Halo to become what it once was. We saw with the Master Chief Collection's inclusion of Halo Reach that Halo does have a huge amount of fans across a number of platforms. The Steam sales even were impressive, and Halo is by far dwarfing the fan bases of their Gears of War franchises, and a number of the other things they've got. So they need Halo to be successful. As far as an infinite delay, oh, goodness gracious. Uh, see, I'm, I'm so scared to, to even like make the firm prediction because it is the topic of the hour, but I do not think you will see an infinite delay. I I do not think it's going to happen. They know they've got to nail it. They know they've, they've been working towards it, and I would argue... The announcement of the Xbox Series X, the uh, XO slate that they showed us at XO19, what they're planning for E3, they know they need to nail this launch. They have botched the last two major console launches of the 360 and the One. They need to nail the Series X uh, because they don't want to play recovery yet again for a third generation in a row. So I think Infinite is their flagship launch title. It helps them Parlay the messaging of cross-generation to fans, saying, "Hey, you don't need to get in on a Series X right now if you've got a One. That's fantastic. They need that to be the the example game for a number of people and for a number of developers and show third parties that there's money to be made in both arenas and and in cross-gen. So, uh, all in all, the long-winded answer to your very simple but complex question is no. I don't think it will be delayed, but I do understand all the trepidations surrounding that topic. Mm. Uh, A good and short show here, I hope you enjoyed the topical conversations, and now I want to get into a review of a game that I've had uh, the pleasure of checking out, Journey to the Savage Planet. Now, if you're unfamiliar for what this is, the easiest way to describe Journey to the Savage Planet is No Man's Sky meets Obsidian's Outer Worlds uh, meets a bit more combat based in first person, perhaps from the Fallout franchise, but it's super stylish First person exploration, in which you are dropped by yourself onto a planet with a couple different biomes. The planet's name is ARY26, it's uncharted, and your job, working for the fourth best company in the universe from Earth, <laughs> is to uh, scan this savage planet, study it, and produce uh, all types of data to send back to Earth. You'll be scanning plant life. You'll be scanning animal life. You'll be upgrading abilities so you can traverse and and move through the planet and explore more regions. Uh, You're going out, getting resources, bringing it back to your ship, uh, and with a bit of humor, you're 3D printing upgrades for your character. Lots of laughs to be had. They have some full-motion video FMVs that are... (laughs) They are funny because they are from the CEO of the company that you're working for and he's sending you out to your death every single time you get cloned to be brought back to life. Uh, it's a gorgeous color palette, I must say. I, I, I'm derailing my conversation only to say that the, the environments, the biomes are beautiful, beautiful. The, the plant life glows in some respects. There's a brilliant amount of lighting. The planet is weird and interesting to look at. There are all types of hazards and ways of traversing. At one point, you get a grappling hook that is reminiscent even of Metroid Prime 3, where you throw out this golden whip and whip yourself into these rails and slide along these rails, and then you'll be you know scanning a fish that glows and flies at the same time. Uh, It's really wild. You'll destroy and break down different things in order to acquire elements like aluminum or carbon or silicon to upgrade yourself. It's fun. There's snowy tundras, lush forests. There's uh, mountaintops and there's lava caves. There are boss fights in the game. The truth is I went in a bit bit, uh, reserved, I think is the right word for it, because No Man's Sky kind of jaded me on the first person exploration games but what I found is that while it does kind of echo of that there's enough humor to make me laugh there's quite a bit of combat in the game that is not optional but also not forced on you either in many ways you can move around it but the combat is simple simple it's fun you have a very simple gun that you can upgrade here and there but it just you, you take out your enemy with a couple shots and then you move on the animals and the creatures are interesting I am quite high on this game. Journey to the Savage Planet caught me off guard. Was not expecting to be as in on it as I could, but discovering these alien cultures that are on this planet, the teleporters, the statues, and and the various temples that you see, I was surprised. I'm really liking the game. I'm about six hours in or so. I've explored uh, over half of the map, and there's a a rich thing to be be explored there. Uh, In many ways my concern with games like no man's sky is the time investment to really experience everything that you have you know a world that is too big a 30 40 50 hour event laying in front of you and that's not what, what I'm getting from this. This is not a game that's procedurally generated. Rather, it's got a built map with purpose. You are going around and exploring it. It looks to be, based on my completion rate, a 10-hour game. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less, depending on how you take your time. But overall, I would recommend you check out some some trailers for Journey to the Savage Planet. Check out some some gameplay, some streams. I know I'm going to be playing a bit of it over on Mixer.com slash but I'm quite high on it. I really enjoyed it. If any of those things strike your fancy, give it a look. Check it out. I would recommend it based on the things I've said. Uh, a couple couple of points I, I haven't experienced just yet. There is two-player co-op in the game, and you have a, a rich and, and diverse achievement list there for it for those who are interested in it. I'm trying to think about anything else you might need to know that might bring you to it or or push you away from it. Mobility feels really good. You can dodge, you can jetpack your way up and upgrade different things. All in all, I would say that a recommended one. Definitely give it a look. Journey to the Savage Planet caught me off guard, well worth your time. All right guys, that is a, a, certainly a fun and enjoyable episode for me to record for you, but I am all the more honored, all the more excited to bring you an interview with Steven Spawn, who is the COO of Able Gamers. Now, a bit of background on Able Gamers before we dive into that interview. Able gamers is a charity that specializes in bringing custom build setups for those with mental and physical disabilities to help them play video games. whether they need special assistive technology that's high tech like the you know the Xbox adaptive controller which they had a hand in designing, which is a really cool anecdote he'll talk about, down to the lowest tech things like maybe you need a strip of velcro in a certain spot because your muscles on your arm don't have enough to keep your arm upright holding something in place. Maybe it's little things like you can't move your head too much, or you're clicking a mouse uh, is a bit too tiring for you to play in long game sessions. If you're missing a limb or a limb doesn't work, Able Gamers helps you play video games. And all the more interesting was his were his comments rather about working in the medical field, gamifying rehabilitation, uh, helping motivate children to pop balloons in a video game versus say walking down a hallway for. For physical therapy, and it was just really cool and really inspiring and enlightening to listen to the way Stephen describes Able Gamers, to listen to bringing video games to people, uh, and hearing his background. I would encourage you very strongly to go look up Able Gamers, look up the charities they work with, look up their expansion packs, uh, look up what it is they bring to people of, of all types of disabilities, uh, physical and cognitive, is alike. It's heartwarming. It's painful to look at, it's exciting to look at, it will bring happiness and joy to your heart, a bit of sadness as well, and it really enriches the human experience. And I absolutely loved it and I was honored to speak with Stephen because I see so much of that around me with my students each day. So many incredible people who are limited in one way or another, and I myself as well. We talked about Project Insight and Ninja Theory's work uh, with mental disabilities. It's it's fantastic and it shed light, sheds light rather. Onto so many gamers in this country. One of the incredible statistics he drops in the interview 46 million gamers with disabilities in the United States alone. 46 million. And Able Gamers works to help those people. It's incredible. So without further ado, I'm going to stop gushing for a bit. Thank you all for listening to this episode of XEP. I truly hope you enjoy the interview with Steven Spawn, and we look ahead to next week. We have an interview with a good friend of mine, Christian Cooper from Steel Series Peripherals, and I hope you enjoy that as well. That's it for me, guys. Have a fantastic week in gaming. Take care. All right, we are very fortunate today to be joined by Steven Spawn of Able Gamers. Stephen, how are you good, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I am ecstatic to have you on. As I was telling you just before recording, I have been giddy about this for a week. I think it is only prudent to start by letting our listeners know just who you are and what Able Gamers is.
1: Yeah, well, my name is Steve Spawn. I'm the Chief Operations Officer of Able Gamers. Able Gamers is a 501c nonprofit that is out there creating opportunities that enable play in order to combat social isolation and foster inclusive communities and improve the quality of life for people with disabilities. That is to say, we're out there doing a lot of mission initiatives just to be able to help people integrate into society the best way we know how
0: through video games. And that is certainly a mouthful, and, and you help people with physical disabilities through injury and illness, how they may have come to it, but also cognitive disabilities as well, is that correct? Yeah, we don't
1: discriminate based on type of disability, although we predominantly work with those who are physically disabled, particularly in the neuromuscular area. Uh, it's, it's really anybody who needs help gaming who is disabled or considers themselves disabled we will try to help as best we can.
0: And to be the COO of a company, you certainly have a journey to getting there. How did you come into that role?
1: You know, uh, I actually just started by being the guy willing to do the job. Uh, it's As I tell people many times, uh, you know, when they talk about, you know, how do you do things and how do you have success? It's, it's really just about being willing to do the work and say yes. I started out uh, just having my own difficulties in the gaming world. I was on the very low levels of MLG just competing in a a little game called Starseize Tribes, sort of like a Halo predecessor slash uh, companion piece, Mm -hmm. and uh, I was losing my abilities. I was using a mouse and a keyboard just like every other pro gamer does, and holding on to the keyboard and using the mouse at the same time was becoming more and more difficult so i had looked uh, for a way to continue to play using technology because you know of course it was like 1995 of course there has to be you know something out there uh you know that has something to do with uh technology and well there really wasn't you know back then so you know years rolled by and uh, I, I did my search again uh in the early 2000s and i found, came across the post at Able Gamers, talking about World of Warcraft and how you couldn't play just using one hand in Warcraft, and mm-hmm. I knew that was false because I was doing it. I was playing with just a mouse, no keyboard, and I was doing fairly okay, mm-hmm. and uh, so being the little young 20-year-old brat self that you are when you're young and you think you know everything, mm-hmm. uh, I sent off an email to Mark saying, uh, hey, I know you're wrong, I'm right, and you should take that down, and he said, oh yeah, well, if you can do better, write better, so I did. And uh, it helped one person, and then that was an amazing feeling. And then I helped another person, and that was an even better feeling. So quickly I learned that serving the public and helping other people feel good felt a lot better than being a pro gamer and and doing the gaming thing. So I just decided to keep on writing and keep on helping able gamers. And I sort of graduated from writer to editor-in-chief,
0: and uh, eventually I became the COO. Goodness gracious, that is, is is an incredible story, and I would imagine being the COO and just doing the research that comes with an interview like this, I've seen you be visible with any and all challenges you've faced, and in that process, you've become an icon for a number of people who need ex- help with accessibility throughout. Do you get a sense of pressure from that, knowing that so many people are using your service? <laughs>
1: I don't know if I would call myself an icon. I certainly think Able Gamers is becoming iconic. Uh, you know, we we've been working to help a lot of people, and there is definitely an associated pressure with that because you know you're not going to be able to reach and help everyone, and sometimes someone passes away. Mm-hmm. unexpectedly or they're in queue waiting for help and before we can get to them they do pass away or there's just not a solution for the disability and set of challenges that one physical person faces and we can get them you know 70 percent of the way there but not all the way because you know the technology doesn't exist particularly in a nintendo scenario mm-hmm. and it's frustrating uh but uh, you know you do the best you can you help as many people as you can and, you know, whether that is uh, able gamers and doing the work with my wonderful co-workers and teammates there, or whether it's just trying to spread positivity, you know, through my own channels and my own work on the side, it, it's all interconnected in that the message is as long as you're doing the best you can, mm-hmm. and let's face it, we all know when we're giving our level best and when we're just phoning it in, as long as you're giving your level best and helping as much as you can, then it helps you sleep at night because you know you did what you could.
0: And that so eloquently answers the question that I had was if people are passing away or you're unable to help in certain ways that has to be a bit tormenting on the soul and yet to help so many others, that's probably a balancing act that never evens out but certainly helps you go in the right direction.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, truthfully, when we're talking about people that you help versus people you can't, it's it's quite often the ones that you can't that you remember the most. You know, we've had several situations where someone simply didn't make it with their disability, complications arose and whatnot, and it's heartbreaking. And, you know, those kind of scenarios almost push you harder than the successes because it's great to... You know, make your smiles and be able to shoot a video and show how great it is that someone can play. And you're really, really happy for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I never want to be, as a human, and I never want to be a leader of an organization that gets one victory and then spends an entire year running around the room talking about how great it is. Mm -hmm. I want to be the kind of person and the kind of company that does what we can, takes a moment to breathe it in and then move on to help the next person because there's always someone else waiting
0: for help. Certainly so. But I will tell you, those videos and those, those images that you all share of helping those people, it, they're so uplifting and they are so heartwarming to others. And now in looking at those photos, I see – so many different types of controller setups, everything from the elite controller to the adaptive controller to, to customizations I could have never dreamed of. That's something that your organization specializes in, building uh, unique control schemes.
1: Yeah, definitely. One of the founding principles of Able Gamers was doing these controllers, and nowadays we call it our peer support pillar. Uh, and we we actually have four pillars, including peer support, community development, engineering, and research. And what all of that combines is the lifeblood of Able Gamers. My particular pillar that I'm the, the most in charge of day to day is peer support, which means that we don't just give someone a controller and then wish them good luck. Mm-hmm. We actually bring them in, start them out from the website or through word of mouth or through the hospital, you know, wherever it is that they enter Able Gamers, and it becomes a process of exchanging tickets, exchanging emails, and then getting onto voice calls and video calls. And it's really an 8 to 80 hour, depending on how much you need, uh, a process where we're helping figure out what is it that will get you to the best possible scenario that can be for you. And it's very individualized because I might have a muscular dystrophy, you might have a muscular dystrophy, maybe even we're the same subtype of muscular dystrophy, but that doesn't mean that all the symptoms and challenges are the same. They may be completely different. We could be different ages. We could be different geographical reasons. All these things come into play when you're figuring out what you need for someone. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it's just not as simple as pulling something off a shelf and being like, aha, you have muscular dystrophy, type 27. Here you go. Here's your controller. Mm -hmm. It's not. I wish it was that easy. It's not. And, you know, making these controllers is part of what we do. It's a big part of it. It's, you know, I love my coworkers that work in the engineering department, like Jesse Hall, you know, who come up with some amazing things. You know, we've come up with our own controllers with Evil Gamers as well, going back to the adroit Switchblade with Evil Controllers, you know, the, the wonderful Xbox product that, that sort of sort of changed a lot of things for a lot of people uh, and eventually became the Xbox Adaptive Controller. Yeah. You know, it's it's great to work on these controllers, and uh, we do, uh, but sometimes it's just simple. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's a matter of, Well, what if you take a piece of Velcro, you put it on the back of your controller, you put another piece on your table, and therefore now you don't have to worry about the controller flying around your table or your lap. It'll stay in place, and you can move your arms around it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes a little piece of Velcro can change somebody's world. And... It sounds counterproductive. you think I would go on shows and be like, we need millions of dollars. Because we do. It is an expensive ordeal to run a non-profit like ours. Mm-hmm. But also, it's not always expensive controllers. Sometimes it's very simple adaptations from people that have been there. And that's the point of peer support, is to give you that experience that you may have not otherwise had
0: yet. Steve, that was one of the more fascinating things as I researched it. It's the low-tech versus the high-tech, and the simplicity that comes with low-tech, and yet the creativity to come up with those things w- was awe-inspiring and baffling at the same time. And, it, and it, I have to ask, does it get easier as you guys go? You know, I don't know if it gets easier. I think there's definitely somewhere in your brain that catalogs
1: things, you know, and there's times when, you know, Jesse, my program director, Craig Kaufman, one of us will see something and say, oh, we should reference that for later cuz that might be useful for someone and then 6 months down the road you go hey you remember that thing maybe that will be helpful here mm-hmm. and so in that way yes experience uh, does definitely play a key role in being good at what we do you know uh, i've been doing this for 14 years now or so and able gamers has existed for 15 so you're talking you know nearly 60 years of experience combined between all the leaders of able gamers mm-hmm. it's it's super valuable uh, on the flip side uh, i think it's just a matter of people with disabilities are a bunch of ingenuitive people. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, anybody out there who is disabled, you know, I'm sure is smiling and nodding along because from the get-go, you begin to see the world as if you're a MacGyver. You know, you you literally see parts that were never meant to do this, that, or the other thing, and you figure it out. I mean, when I was young, my mom taught me that since I can't lift my arm from a table up to my mouth to eat a potato chips, I would just take a pair of... Uh, tongs that you mm-hmm. use for say turning hot dogs on a grill mm-hmm. and uh, that I could eat potato chips by just pushing on that and bringing it up to my mouth and, and that kind of you know uh, just figuring out the way the world works for you mm-hmm. is what disabled people do and I think that is one of the magic secrets of able gamers is we brought a bunch of people together who have very different experiences very different points of view but they're all in the disability community and we decided you know what uh this will work.
0: That's incredible. And you all, I think, I believe you mentioned it there. You all did work kind of in a consulting type basis for the adaptive controller. Is that correct? Yeah, more than that, we
1: were in on the ground floor. So um, Bryce Johnson, one of the architects of the accessible controller, has known of you know, myself and Craig Kaufman and Able Gamers for years and years and years, and you know, reached out to us right away uh, when when as soon as he could um to let us know that xbox was interested in making this and he had seen the adroit switchblade he had worked on a microsoft hackathon where they developed a similar kind of controller mm-hmm. uh, and they wanted to sort of smash all these ideas together and come up with a controller for people with disabilities so they brought us into a room and uh a virtual room and you know it was us just sort of talking about what this thing might look like. In fact, uh, one of my favorite stories to share is uh, early on in the process, uh, it was so uh, hush-hush that they weren't even allowed to show us what this thing looked like in a physical presence. They weren't allowed to bring it on camera in case somebody would take a screenshot of it and leak Mm -hmm. it. So literally on a piece of notepad, we had people drawing what the XAC would eventually look like uh, so that we could try to give feedback as early as possible, and uh, you know, from there it became a, a matter of pulling in other members of Able Gamers to give their their feedback, and it became a three and a half year process of trying out prototypes, sending in feedback, doing the loop over and over until you got what you saw
0: in the Super Bowl. And that, oh, and what a cool moment that was. And what boggles my mind about the adaptive controller and just adaptive technologies are all the ways that they can be accessed and the different ways to change configurations accordingly. To find that you guys consulted on such a level from the ground floor all the way through is fantastic. Do you see other companies, now that Microsoft has shown it, do you see other companies stepping up to the plate in a similar fashion?
1: Well, we're already seeing it in example, you know Logitech just coming out with the adaptive gaming kit, where they took you know essentially what would be four or five or six hundred dollars worth of switches that go with. The Xbox Adaptive Controller, and now it's ninety nine bucks on Logitech's website. And you know, Logitech G, um, you know, full disclosure has been very good to me and able gamers. And and because of that, you know, it, it's it's worth noting that they believe in people with disabilities and in situations that aren't typical. You know, I've been working with you know one of their high level people, Ujesh, for years and years now, and you know, been so good about working with any kind of adaptive controllers or devices that we need and you know one of the great things about that was that it's just going to lead to others joining in the same i don't want to say race but in that same field uh where you know suddenly i went from arguing on the showroom floor of pax east that gamers with disabilities existed and needed support to now you know, we have research coming out of Able gamers like brilliant minds, Chris Powers and Greg Haynes who are doing the research that shows there are at least forty six million gamers with disabilities in America alone. That number goes up to six digits when you start reaching into the other countries around the world. And you know, it's 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 uh mind boggling, quite honestly. How many people there are out there who classify themselves as disabled and some people who don't even want to identify with the disability community, but they still need some adaptations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these, uh, this is not a a niche community as it was once believed, once believed it is a place where there is money to be had. We have billions of dollars of disposable income in, you know, Xbox peripherals in things that are needed in the community. Not to mention all of the parts, you know, that, that have to go with these, Uh, there's a market, there's a, there's a business case to be made, not just a, you know, philanthropic, you know, heartwarming kind of way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. That's definitely one of my arguments, but also these are companies. You have to, you have to speak to the bottom line, right? Or else Mm -hmm. they're not going to listen to you. So, you know, it's, it's good to know that they're, they're coming along, they're out there. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, uh, honestly, uh, uh, I could tell you more, but I'm under so many NDAs that a bunch of golden robots will pop out of my closet and start beating me if I talk too much. So <laughs> suffice it to say
0: that I'm excited for the future and what 2020 and beyond brings. That's incredible. 46 million. And, and to hear logitechs uh, I know that kit it was much lauded, much talked about. And you'd have to imagine because there's a business element, more will open up to it. When I hear the words accessibility, a couple things jump into my mind button mapping, closed captions, text size. What more am I missing when I think about just basic accessibility from a UI standpoint?
1: Yeah, when we're talking about UIs or really any accessibility, that's when I point my finger towards the APX or accessible player experiences that Able Gamers brought to life over the last few years and is now making certified courses in accessibility where now you literally can come to Able Gamers and we will put you in a class where you can learn how to become a certified practitioner, meaning you know as much as we do about being accessibility forefront and you know designing your games with accessibility in mind. And there there's over two dozen examples of what it's like to design for accessibility. For example, one of my favorites that has Xbox origins was uh, called undo redo. And uh, Undo Redo really is something simple when you think about, say, Forza, and Mm -hmm. you're typing in your name on your Xbox and you're typing in your license plate, and you accidentally say your name with one letter off because you were trying to do it quickly while eating some Cheetos, and now you're stuck with that being your name for the rest of the time on that game unless you reinstall, right? Mm -hmm. Or you get a new account. Sure. Well, Undo Redo is just a simple reminder that Maybe you should leave away in your game for someone to click on, uh-oh, I pushed the wrong button, and then redo your option. Because it's not necessarily their fault. Mm-hmm. Now, if if you were busy with Cheeto Fingers and it was your fault, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But another good example is uh, in that same frame, let's say uh, a friend, not a friend, but a companion of able gamers was going through the game Warframe. Mm -hmm. And they had a choice where in Warframe you have to grind for hours and hours. We're talking hundreds of hours to get this one reward where you can choose A or B. Mm -hmm. And they chose the wrong one because they had tremors. And their Mm -hmm. hand tremored right when they clicked, and it took the wrong one. And the support people would not refund the person's choice because that was on them. They're the ones that chose that. There was no dialogue option to say, are you sure you want this? There was no, whoops, you did this, put it back, take the other one. It was just done. Mm -hmm. 100, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours of work gone. So... Yeah, you know, we always recommend that. Just as one example, uh, that you can save people a lot of heartache just by allowing them to redo their choices in case it's not their fault, but their disability that made them click the wrong thing.
0: It's so obvious, and yet so many would be aloof to something like that. In offering these accessibility options, you're helping multiple communities outside of just the disability community. Absolutely. When we talk about accessible design,
1: we're talking about good game design. You know, I was on a panel with uh, Star Wars: The Old Republic. You know, back. A decade ago now uh, mm-hmm. Gosh, that's hard to say, holy crap It's been it's been, <laughs> been, a, been a while But, uh, you know, on, on PAX East's floor You know, and a panel Giving them an accessibility award And, you know, I, I kind of uh, I think I embarrassed Slash annoyed the executive producer Of the game because he kind of tried To brush it off as a Well, this we were just designing to be You know, as friendly as we could And it was not purposeful that we were accessible So, you know This is great, but we didn't mean to. And Mm -hmm. I stopped them cold and said, listen, golden design is good game design is accessible design. It's Mm -hmm. all the same thing. At the end of the day, you're making things as friendly as you can for everyone. And that includes people with disabilities. And if you're making something where, at the time, what it was is you could... Click on a body and it loots the entire body instead of so clicking each individual thing, which makes someone who has stamina challenges more tired. Mm-hmm. So these kind of you know small little quality of life improvements can be accessibility improvements, and that's why it's always heartbreaking when you know anybody who follows me on Twitter knows I can be feisty sometimes and things like that. And the reason I I am willing to grab the shield and hold it up in front of you know others is because sometimes we have to remind ourselves that our situation is not the same situation for everyone. Maybe, just maybe... Clicking on that body and looting it is super easy for you and part of the fun of the game. But maybe for someone else, they can only click 100 bodies before their arm just won't work anymore. And there's no medication, no accessible technology that will make up for that. The the muscle just stops after 100 clicks. So if that's different between you know killing 5 monsters or 100 monsters, give me the option to choose and let me say, I want to be able to play longer and I want this body to be looted automatically. It's very easy. It doesn't impede anyone's fun. it's an option that i can set specifically because it helps
0: me it's fascinating because i would imagine through working with multiple companies at, at times you do have to have that brazen attitude uh and then in other ways you've probably opened so many people's eyes on the ux side just realizing oh yeah i do need to do that
1: absolutely absolutely so uh you know it's a privilege and an honor to be out there and fighting for people and you know getting companies to realize when they're taking a misstep and i think we've become such a you know to use the hot term right now cancel culture of if someone takes a misstep you take them to task and you scream with them for hours and we've lost this this critical feedback loop we've lost the ability to just say hey that's not helpful to the people in my audience, you know, Mm -hmm. hey, Sakura, listen, great game, thumbs up, good job, but you forgot about a segment of the population, how about some options, and Mm -hmm. then some people get really mad because you're suggesting things that are options, and it's just a shame that in 2020, we're still arguing over things that are options, Mm -hmm. uh, instead of taking everyone into consideration, especially if it doesn't hurt anyone else. Sure, sure.
0: And before we get to listener questions, Steve, my wife is a physical therapist, and she was posing me all types of questions prior to the interview. One of the things that kept coming up, how do you work with the medical community on on bridging the gap between gamers, between able gamers, and and speaking kind of with the medical community about how to produce and and work through your content?
1: You know, in a couple of ways. So we have our expansion packs that are our grant program evolved into going from just individuals to then now we support hospitals and facilities and rehabilitation centers where we bring in a bunch of technology and set it up and allow for the hospital to learn how to use it, the staff to come in and become experts themselves in how to handle this equipment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that that goes a long way because now they have access to the equipment themselves. And we're setting up programs where we're training nurses on how to better handle equipment. And, you know, we we have other programs in the work to care for the caretakers. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's really something that we're going to keep pushing on is you don't just have to educate the end user. You need to educate the entire family. Mm -hmm. And it's something that we believe in very passionately. And we want to make sure that, you know,
0: the people who have to set up the technology are empowered to do their job to help others. Do you find it's rehabilitative in any way, or is it strictly an entertainment aspect?
1: Oh, not at all. In uh, working with places like uh, Columbus Children's Hospital, we have discovered that patients who are testing for new drugs or for rehabilitation are much more likely to stick with their OTPT Mm -hmm. if it's a game-based activity rather than something where they have to exert energy. You know, a kid who's got uh, new drug that's going to help them walk or stand a little bit longer because it increases your stamina and your body, they're mm-hmm. way more likely to give you the true value of how long they can tolerate standing up or jumping around if they're standing trying to pop balloons on a screen mm-hmm. than making them walk down a dark blue hallway for 30 minutes. It, you know, it, it's, it's Anybody would get bored after 30 minutes. Um, so, you know, it, it helps. Video games give you something to focus
0: on and allow you to have something that entertains your mind and keeps you in the game longer. You are speaking to my soul, good sir, because my day job is a middle school teacher, and entertainment is the heart of education, let me tell you. Oh, goodness. Well, we had quite a few people write in questions for you. Do you mind taking a few? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, the first one comes from our friend Famous Seamus, and he asks, uh, does backward compatibility on consoles like Xbox One help people with disabilities play games from older consoles? Especially with things like the adaptive controller, are you able to kind of go back and experience games that you might not have, or, or do you find that your able gamer companions are able to? You know, it's weird. Backwards
1: compatibility is both a blessing and a curse because what happened with the 360 was we made all this amazing technology. We worked with a whole bunch of partners to make their amazing technology. And we had everything set We're on the Xbox 360. If you had most all the archetypes of uh, disabilities, you know, neuromuscular, or if you had any kind of, you know, uh, limb difference, we could help you out. Mm-hmm. We had the technology to do it. And then the Xbox One came out. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, back to square one. Because none of the technology worked. Really? Now, yeah, none, and of none. of it, and it was frustrating. It was very frustrating. And so, you know, when you know we began working with Microsoft while the Xbox One was, you know, in its life cycle, uh, we were able to, you know, have conversation with them, letting them know, hey, you know, everybody wants backwards compatibility because they don't want to buy their games again, and we, you know, that's an entirely different fight altogether that we're not going to get involved in. All we're saying is. Don't make us remake the hardware every damn time. Mm. And, uh, you know, it it worked out fine. It worked out where, you know, the Xbox, you know, heard our concerns and whether they decided to allow technology because of us or because of others or because of a combination, it doesn't matter to us. All that matters is that as these generations continue to come forward, we're seeing more and more backwards compatibility and that's allowing us to, to keep this, technology moving forward and uh, you know I say it's a curse sometimes because what happens is that kind of doesn't motivate tech makers to continue keeping up with the times. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you have to walk the line and make sure that people continue innovating, keep continue making and uh, it's important that uh, these makers who are well, out there often doing this on their own dime
0: not paid uh, have a motivation to keep making new technology. Certainly so, and you have to think, given the, the PWDs that, that make up that $46 million, and and because it is a bottom line, that forward compatibility does make a difference into the next generations where we're hearing so much about your tech should follow you for a time. Exactly. Let's see here. Hypecaster asks, Stephen, have you learned why the choice is made so often to have tiny subtitle text? Is it a real estate concern? Have game makers discussed about letters and, and screen sizes on 4K? <laughs> and then he has a separate question. If you had to choose one big accessibility option to change that could happen right now, what would you prioritize? You
1: know, it's interesting. Um, Able Gamers, uh, Mark Barlett, the founder, and, and I were invited to Rockstar uh, back in the early, early days of Able Gamers and back when nobody was allowed, and I guess nobody really is still allowed to go and hang out with Rockstar. Um, and one of the things that they we were doing there, we were checking out LA Noir, and uh, you know the, the newest Max Payne was just about to come out, and uh, what we learned that day was that sizes are made specifically because regionally, Uh, the same size is then used, and there's no way to change that. So when you have a language like Chinese that is much more character-based than America, we only have 26, you know, um, and and when you're talking about going further out, you know, the basis of that language gets bigger and bigger. So a 26-point font might be great uh, for American languages, but if you have a foreign language, maybe it's going to fill up the entire screen. And so they couldn't do it because... There was just no way. Nowadays, that technology is not really a concern anymore because it's easier to edit code and mm-hmm. it's easier to implement changes, even geographically. Uh, you know, and it's it's just unfortunate that we're still sort of in that holdover where people, uh, developers specifically, uh, tend to think of it like you know the old days where you had to choose one font size and you stuck with it. Now, it's, it's easier, and I can't speak for all games, obviously, but for a lot of engines, it's, it's an easier option, and it should be one that's thought of more often. Um, you know, would that be my number one priority? Uh, I don't think so. Um, professionally, able gamers-wise, it would always be remappable keys. Although... You know, a lot of people forget that just five years ago, remappable keys were not standard. They mm-hmm. became standard because a lot of advocates for disabilities, myself and able gamers included, fought really, really hard and often to get this done. Uh, and now it's just a default. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be still my number one because it helps so many people, both able-bodied and disabled. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's things like that are, are amazing. Um, and for myself personally, uh, sensitivity um it's the thing i argue with companies the most about mouse sensitivity and controller sensitivity let people decide how fast they want that darn camera to turn around Mm -hmm. some some companies don't understand that you know maybe an extremely
0: slow or extremely fast camera is what you need to be able to play i and i remember that discussion it has to do also with how quickly or how far you can move your hand for that mouse sensitivity is that correct
1: Correct. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're somebody who has an MS or a CP and you can move a lot with a little bit of effort and then your arm kind of overshoots based on where you're trying to move it, you're going to want something very, very slow, like a one or a two on the mouse sensitivity scale. But if you're someone who has a spinal muscular atrophy or a muscular dystrophy like I do and you can barely move your hands whatsoever, you need to be able to traverse the entire screen or turn in 360 on a controller with barely any movement. And that mouse sensitivity has to be really high. So, you know, I'm just always imploring companies to remember that everybody might be at a 50 for the most part, but the outliers are out there and you need to figure for them too.
0: One or two more, Stephen. A friend of mine, Kevin, was asking me if xCloud or Stadia or streaming technologies have changed the way Able Gamers has gone about bringing uh, games to different people.
1: Uh, you know, uh, you're kind of entering in close to NBA territory, so I can only answer this question limitedly and say that... You know, it was a pleasure to have us uh, be welcomed by the Google Stadio team and we were happy to help them with what we could. Uh, you know, and, and it is something that I think all of us in any capacity of the video game industry, whether you are adjacent like able gamers and you're trying to help the world or whether you're out there making games, you're gonna have to keep in mind that not all games will be physical very very soon you know there'll be a time where we just turn on our extremely paper thin tvs and tell the computer to boot up you know uh, halo 95 and Mm -hmm. that's that's just going to be it and there's going to be no hardware there's going to be no interface so it's uh something to continue keeping in mind and uh hopefully as
0: time goes on we'll uh we'll keep ourselves in line with that certainly so steven i can't thank you enough for donating your time today and sharing so many anecdotes with me can you please tell the people where they can find you and how they might be be able to investigate more about able gamers
1: yeah you can find able gamers on just about any social media twitter instagram facebook uh, probably myspace who knows we're all out there on able gamers uh everywhere you can find us go to ablegamers.org You can find out more about volunteering. You can find out more about how you donate. Uh, We are over 90% individual funded right now. So anybody who's listening who can give 20 bucks that goes a long way. It costs $350 to help a person with disabilities on average to be able to game again. And uh, that goes a long way. Uh, Individual donations help. You know, $20 a month uh, will help one person in a year. So uh, that helps a lot. If we're coming to your area, keep an eye on our Twitter, and that's how you can find out if you can volunteer, say it's Apex East or something like that. And uh, if you want to find me personally, it's Steven Spawn, and that's on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and I'm always out there talking about uh, disability rights and advocacy and the occasional joke here and there. Steven, an absolute pleasure. Thank you again for coming on. It was my pleasure. Thanks for the invite, and uh, happy gaming to all of you.
0: Thank you all for listening. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at InsipidGhost or over on Mixer at com slash InsipidGhost and, of course, on all your podcast services. Take care, guys.